Now, what we've been doing is we're in a series called Philippians, Becoming Like Christ. Now, I'm going to bring you up to speed in less than three minutes, if I could do that, on where we are in the book of Philippians before we look at today's message, which is really, really convicting and hard, and I already don't like it personally. So what's going on is the church in Philippi, that's where the, the, the book of Philippians came from, was begun by Paul in the book of Acts chapter 16. Paul grabbed some guys, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, and they're given a vision by God to go into the area known as Macedonia. Macedonia is a big area. Philippi is the first major city, and it was a major city. Philippi was given as a gift from Philip of Macedon II, I believe, to his son, Alexander the Great. Ever heard of it? And he was given that a city, so uh, <clears throat> Alexander the Great named the city after his daddy in honor of his dad, and then it became a major military outpost, so there's a lot of military there, which becomes relevant when Paul shows up with his buddies to spread the gospel. Their normal model or method was, we're going to go into the city, we're going to find a synagogue, and we're first going to share the gospel with the Jews. Then whatever Jews come over and believe in Christ as Savior and Lord, they'll be the start of the church, but when they get there, there's no synagogue. So Paul and his buddies decide to go down to the river and just see if there's anybody meeting there for prayer. And they find a small group ladies prayer group, Bible study group. There's no Bibles, but they just find a group of ladies praying together. They share the gospel with those ladies. Here's the gospel in a nutshell, in case you don't know it. God loves you so much that he will not leave you how he found you. That you and I have been sinning and rebelling against God. We've been doing things different than the way God intended for us to do them for a long time. And so because God is fully just, and also fully merciful, his justice had to be satisfied. Now, he could either satisfy that by punishing you for what you've done in disobedience to him, or, and this is the route he chose, he could satisfy that by punishing his son, Jesus, when he died on the cross. But when he rose from the dead, he gave life and hope instead of punishment. And so as Paul taught that message, one of the ladies in that group believed, and her name was Lydia. And Lydia, uh, she was a, a merchant. She literally owned a business. And she said to Paul and her buddies, come and stay at my house, and I will take care of you. And her whole home converted to Christ. Not only her home, but her servants. Probably some of her own employees converted to Christ. Well, in the very next story that we're told, Paul goes back to the river over and over and over again, and there's this woman following him around, and she is uh, demon-possessed. And I don't have time to go into that. I talked a little bit about it last week. And as she's demon-possessed, she's proclaiming, here's this guy, Paul, he's telling you about the most high God, blah, 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 blah. Well, what ends up happening in, <coughs> excuse me, in that moment is Paul gets sick of it, he turns around, he casts the demon out of her. And we believe, though we're not told emphatically, we believe she became a member in the New Testament church. And this leads us to the third thing, the third one. So after that, Paul and Silas are arrested and thrown in prison by the owners of this woman who is now has no benefit for them because she doesn't have a demon in her anymore. And when they're thrown in prison, they're put in shackles, but while they're in prison, they praise God, an earthquake comes and frees them. And the jailer comes in and finds they're freed, and he's about to kill himself because he thinks they've escaped, and it's going to be on his head. And Paul says, stop, and he shares the gospel with the jailer, and right there, right there, the jailer receives Christ. The jailer takes Paul and Silas back to his home. He cleans up their wounds. He, his whole family, his servants receive the Lord that night. They're baptized in the middle of the night. And now we have a Philippian church. Now think about this for a minute. Do you think in a New Testament church made up of a wealthy business owner, a formerly abused demon-possessed girl, and a jailer who used to be in the military, do you think there's some differences between those three? Do you think that maybe one has money and at least the other one, the girl probably doesn't have much, the jailer's probably somewhere in the middle? 
When it comes to power and prominence, one has a lot of influence, one has zero. When it comes to education, one of them clearly has a lot of education, one probably in the middle, one probably has hardly any at all. Now, the reason I say that is because this Philippian church is made up of many different social classes. It's made up of different education levels, different finance uh, abilities, financial abilities. And yet we have a church. And this is the only book, the only book written where Paul doesn't rebuke the church. Go read Galatians sometime. Like Paul, in his first few chapters, rebukes them hard. Why have you gotten away from grace and gone back to the law? Like, what are you doing? Have I wasted my time? I mean, that's pretty strong words. Corinthians. I mean, he rebukes them hard, hard for how they're acting. But of Philippians, there's none of that. However, that doesn't mean there isn't tension in the church. In fact, if you read a chapter 4, you'll find there's two ladies that are fighting with each other, and they will not get over it. And Paul loves them both dearly. And he begs them, please, 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 in light of Jesus Christ, just put your differences behind you. He even calls another person out. Could you imagine that letter? You're so excited. This letter is coming. You're finally, the way this is work is the church leaders would get the letter from Paul, and then they would stand and read it for the whole church. And then they get to chapter four. You know, maybe they didn't get a chance to proofread it. And then he just calls out two ladies by name in front of the entire church. Wow. And then he calls out somebody else by name. He says, and I want you to go help them fix it. What this shows, number one, is Paul loved this church, but number two, that church is no different than any church you've ever met, ever. Because the reality is, when you meet with other people who are different from you, at some point, you start to fight. So take a look now. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul begins this conversation with this. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Now, these questions are all intended to be rhetorical. Paul assumes the answer. Yes, yes, yes. Is it? That's the idea here. And what Paul's trying to get to is, okay, think about it. When you look at Christ, do you find encouragement for your current suffering and situation? Of course you do. Do you find any comfort from his love no matter what's going on in your life? Of course you do. Do you find fellowship together in the body? You should, is what he's trying to say. And then this last one, so are your hearts tender and compassionate? And what Paul's trying to get to is here, the reason that there's conflict, the reason there's conflict in your life is because you have forgotten the encouragement of God, the comfort of God's love. You have forgotten the fellowship of the body. Now get this, and, and I don't have a ton of time to unpack this, but it's powerful. When God created back in Genesis, and he it literally, it says that God looked and said, let us make man in our own image. That's a whole great conversation. Because God is talking to God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Let us make man in our own image. And there are so many depths to this idea we call the Trinity, but this one is fascinating. That means when God made all over his earth, no one man, no one woman can completely encapsulate God. In order to really get a picture and understanding of who God is, you've got to have a whole smattering of people. I just, you're like, that smattering. I don't even know where that came from. You've got to have a whole bunch of people together who each represent God in their own little way. Do you ever meet another personality and it just drives you nuts how creative they are but have no details to them whatsoever? Said every person who's ever met me. Have you ever met somebody who was so detail-oriented they almost came out as legalistic? You're like, oh, my goodness. Have you ever met somebody who was just so good with numbers and blew you away? 
Have you ever met somebody who's just really good at leadership? Like, it's just natural to them. Have you ever met somebody who they serve, and when they do it, you're like, how do you do that? When you put all these different personalities together, you find a little bit of a picture of God. But one or two, you can't get there. So what's the point? Well, what Paul is driving to, I want you to see this in verse 2, is this. Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other. Love one another. Work together with one mind and purpose. Now let me just ask you a question right now. As I'm talking about this, is there a name? If not, I want you to think of a name. Is there somebody in your life that you just have this conflict with? Is there a person in your life that you think, man, if they would just say I'm sorry, things would go a lot better. But they're not. And you feel solidified in your position because you're right. If the person is sitting next to you and rode in the car on the way here, now would be a good time to keep your elbows to yourself. You know the benefit of being the pastor is you come two hours before your family. You can't fight till after church. So it doesn't have to get in the way. Not that we do. <laughs> the reality is life is hard and it's full of conflict. And it's full of conflict because of personality. And it's full of conflict because of all other kinds of things. But, but when a church, when a church gets healthy, it's not that it doesn't have conflict. It's not the absence of conflict. It's that we agree. We agree that the most important things are to stay focused on working together with one mind and purpose. That means you and I can completely disagree about who's going to be the best president this year, and we could have totally different reasons about why. Some of you are like, can you say that? Yes. We can actually disagree about secondary and tertiary doctrines. We cannot disagree about primary ones. Those ones aren't up for debate. Is Jesus Lord? Is he the only way to heaven? The Bible doesn't make those negotiable. But we could disagree about all kinds of things outside of that, and we could do it in love. But the moment that those things that we disagree about start becoming primary things and they start dividing us, we are outside of the will of God. Things must be explicitly confirmed by God in order for us to stand on them and even divide over them. We must divide with heretics. The Bible's clear on that. However, we don't divide with brothers and sisters because we think that the color of clothing they chose or the way they do their hair or the way they dress is the right or the wrong way. I'll never forget, in my last church, we had a young guy. He got on stage. And look, it probably wasn't wise. I'm not saying it was. But this was before like, things got more comfortable in church. This was about 15 years ago. And he got up on stage, and he wore sandals that day. And I'll never forget the leadership meeting the next day, the oldest gentleman on staff who I love with all my heart. I remember him saying, did you see him wear sandals on stage? Somebody needs to tell him that's inappropriate. And I jokingly sat next to him. I said, you do realize Jesus wore sandals, right? <laughs> and he said, that's debatable. <laughs> no, it's not. But he had gotten hardened in his position. And, and guys, where he was coming from, the way he was taught, if you're going to show up at church, you wear your best because you're coming to honor the best. And so for him, it was disrespectful. But for my friend, it was a completely different culture. And I had to challenge both of them. I had to challenge both this young man. Look, you need to step up to where he is and also challenge him. You need to let go of this. This isn't a, this isn't a biblical issue. But the goal is to get one mind and one purpose working on the same mission together. When you find that, let me tell you, it's an unstoppable force. What happens, you know there are about 2 billion Christians in the world, even if everybody who claims to be a Christian is actually a Christian, 2 billion. What would happen if 2 billion Christians had one mind and purpose? Imagine the power in that. 
Imagine now just 2,000 people, say, in Avon, Indiana, going out into their community and serving. So last week, I challenged you, in case you missed it, is your chance, or if you're online watching, last week we challenged you to do some sort of random act of kindness over these next couple weeks. And when you do, don't make it so random like you never meet them, but actually go to the person and give them. We have little cards. You can pick these up at this table right out here. It says, my journey. You could do it. You could grab one today. Take as many as you want. We'll print more. And just give it to them. And there's a website on here. It tells them where to go next. Imagine 2,000 people with one mind, one purpose, serving together to make a difference in our community. I got an email this week from one person. I got permission to share it, and I also took out details so as not to name the guilty. Here we go. This is uh, an email from somebody at Kingsway this week said this. Hi, Matt. So I'll be honest. I was trying to think of a random act of kindness and had decided that I probably wouldn't do anything because it would be awkward. And everybody else in the room went, yeah, I know. I told God, though, okay, if he put someone in front of me, like if he did all the dirty work, that I would try So tonight, of course, I was checking out at a local store. I took the name out, and I asked the cashier, how is your day going? Simple and innocent enough until God decides to mess up your life. (laughs) She started telling me about some struggles she's going through. I asked her if she minded if I went and bought her a few things. So I went over to another local store, took the name out, and I bought her a bunch of groceries, and some presents for a loved one's birthday she couldn't afford to celebrate. We talked for a little bit, and I told her, look, I don't have a lot of extra money, but God has always provided, and it made me want to be more generous to others. She started crying and hugging me. She said she believes in God, but she feels guilty praying because she never goes to church. I was telling her how I got far away from God and church for 10 years, but he just kept pursuing me. I gave her the card from our bulletin, and she asked which church I attend and said she would come with me. So listen, I don't know who you are, but if you're in the room today, welcome. We're so glad you're here. We're so glad. Maybe you're watching us online because you feel like that's a safer first step, and that's okay. We're still glad you're here with us this morning. So, or maybe you're at home watching the Colts game and you'll watch later. But, it's all right, whatever. I think this is such a powerful story. Somebody whose heart was hardened. God can't use me. I don't have it. It's too embarrassing. It's too awkward. I don't have much money anyway. And then when that person finally swallowed their pride, became humble, just said, okay, God, whatever, whatever, fine. If you do it, If you make it happen, I'll do it. And then, of course, God's like, good. That's all I wanted in the first place. You know what happens when we do that? Everything changes. You just open yourself up to what God has planned for your life. And it is an amazing experience. Amazing experience. So part of this whole, I want you to go back. Put up verse 1 again, if you will. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. I want you to see in this very last thing. This whole here, are your hearts tender and compassionate? The problem for most of us, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we're very tender, very compassionate about what God has done in our lives. But over time, we become calloused and hardened and judgmental. And I believe that's probably one of the largest barriers for people outside the church to accept Christ and come to church because they see in us this judgmental tendency. Now, you may know this story, but in Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells three stories in a row. The first story goes like this. In Luke 15, there's, there's a man, he's a shepherd, and he has 100 sheep. One of the sheep wander away from the flock. 
And he leaves the 99 others and pursues the one until he finds it. And he puts it on his shoulders and brings it back. And then he throws a big party. And Jesus concludes that story. And he says, you know, and all of heaven rejoices over just one sheep who repents. Then he tells another story, back to back to back. Three stories right now. His second story is about a woman who has 10 coins, and she loses a coin. Picture a small home, a woman who probably doesn't have a husband, very few resources. This is all she has to survive. Her coin is extremely important to her. So she's lost her coin. Imagine it's buried in a dirt floor. She can't find it anywhere. She's on her hands and knees. She's digging everywhere. She spent the whole day. She's told all her friends. Maybe her friends have come over and looked with her. No luck until finally she finds the coin. She throws this big party. Everybody gathers together. I found my coin I found my coin and that story concludes with an all of heaven rejoices over just one sinner just one sinner who repents and comes to Jesus and then he tells the third story and you've heard the story before it's amazing by the way especially in political seasons how often you will hear reference to the prodigal son that phrase and it came right out of the story Jesus told Jesus tells about a son, and he's a prodigal son, and that this father has two sons, an older son, a younger son. The older son would have received a double inheritance, two-thirds. The younger son would have received one-third of the inheritance. And so the younger son comes to his daddy one day and says, I want my money. Now, the only way he gets the money is if the daddy dies. Culturally, the younger son is saying, I want you dead. That's how he feels about his dad. He doesn't love him. And the dad says, okay, take it. And the son takes it, and it says he spent it on wild living. He went out partying and drinking it up and sleeping around. And when he finally ran out of money, he became desperate, and all of a sudden he found his friends had left him completely. And he started getting a job serving pigs, trying to make money just to eat. But he was so hungry, and it was taking too long to get the money, and there was a massive famine in the land. And so all of a sudden he's sitting there feeding the pigs, and he goes, man, I just want to eat the slop that the pigs are eating. And while sitting there being tempted to eat slop, it dawned on him, what would happen if I could just go back to my father's kingdom and fall on my knees and beg my father to make me a servant in his home? I'll just serve my father the rest of my life. So he does. He swallows his pride. He goes home. He gets home. And what happens, we're told in the story, is the father sees his son far off and he runs to him. And if you don't know this, Hebrew fathers never ran. Hebrew fathers, in order to run, would have had to, you got a picture like a toga, it's the best way I can give you an example, they'd have had to hike up their garment, completely culturally inappropriate. But no, 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 this father can't wait to see his son. And he runs to his son, and when he gets to him, he puts a robe on him. He puts a ring on his finger, and he puts sandals on his feet. And see, that last one perhaps is the most powerful, because if you don't know this, see, servants are barefoot. Sons wear sandals. And so the father runs to him, dresses him as if he'd never left the house, as if he was a prominent figure in the home, and he wraps his arms around him. And did you know in that passage, it says that when the father saw his son far off, he had compassion on him. In Greek, it's the word splagna or splagnitzomai, and it literally has to do with a physical moving in his belly. That's what it means. When the father saw him, he ached deeply to be reunited with his son. And that's the story Jesus tells about God the Father in heaven. But when he then tells his servants, go kill the fattened calf. We're throwing a party. My son has returned. Everybody gathers for the party. All the master's employees, all the servants, the young son himself, blown away by the grace of this father. Instead, though, there's one other brother and he won't go into the party. And the father goes out and he finds the older brother and he says, what are you doing? And the brother says, this son of yours, it's not my brother, it's your son. He wasted everything. 
I have been here all along serving you, working hard for you, being faithful to you. Not once, not once did you kill the fattened calf and throw me a party. And the father doesn't jump back in anger. The father doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't yell at him. He just says, but son, everything I have is yours. In other words, in other words, everything is the father's. And the father has always provided for the son. And the blessing that is going to be the son's is no less the blessing. But he looks at him and he says, but Son, your brother, your brother has returned. Come in and party with us. Now Hebrew, not Hebrew, New Testament scholars will tell you that the point of the third story is not the younger brother, the prodigal son. The point of the third story is the older brother. The first two stories are clear that when the lost is found, a big party happens. The third story, same thing, same exact thing. Sheep, coin, son. When it's found, a party is thrown. But instead of stopping there, party is thrown, heaven rejoices. Party is thrown, heaven rejoices. Now party is thrown, and the son has a hardened heart. Why? Because he's not compassionate. He's judgmental towards his brother. And the reality is this. This will happen to all of us, all of us, if we are not careful. We are all one dangerous step away from not being aligned with the Father's heart of compassion. Which leads us into the rest of Philippians. So how do we get a heart of compassion? How do we do that? Paul tells us in the rest of Philippians chapter 2. Before we get there, let me just ask you this one question. There's one way that we get a heart of compassion, one way. And it's through one character trait, one character trait. It's the one trait that we want every politician to have. It's the one trait that we want every boss, CEO, and manager over us to have. It's also the one trait that you and I struggle the most to get. And the moment somebody stands up to preach on it, they're immediately unsuccessful. Because either they are an expert in the subject, which means they're not an expert in the subject. Or they're not an expert in the subject, then why should you listen to them? What is it? humility it's humility the one thing we want out of everybody is humility and we can smell it a mile away when they don't have it come on is it the reason you're not voting for the other candidates because of their lack of humility have you ever let somebody off the hook somebody did something you let them off the hook because you went man i know their heart and if you knew them like i knew them but what happened is that person had a bad moment, person did something poor, but you, because you knew them, you knew their humility, you were willing to let them off the hook, right? Do you ever give credibility to somebody they speak? You're like, man, I just totally buy another person saying, I think, I just believe they're telling the truth. Why? There's something about the way they carry themselves, present themselves, their character, their integrity that makes it just goes, yep, yep, yep. How do we get a compassionate heart of God? We change our attitude to being full of self to being now full of others. Take a look real quick. I'm going to show you three quick Proverbs in the Old Testament that deal with humility. Humility as the root, really, of everything good. Here we go. Proverbs 18.12 says this. Haughtiness goes before destruction. Humility, though, precedes honor. So it's often in the Proverbs you'll get a comparison. This is better than this. Or in this case, the comparison is this. If you want to know what comes right before a massive fall or destruction, it's arrogance or haughtiness. If you want to know what comes before great success or honor humility here's another verse just like it proverbs 29 verse 23 says this pride ends in humiliation while humility brings honor so you want to do great you want to be honored what do you do become 
humble. Don't be prideful. So I remember when I was in a youth group growing up, we, were, we had a, a church softball league for like the youth group. And the way it worked is it was a, it was a mixed boys and girls league. And some of the girls on our team um, didn't have a lot of experience in baseball. I'm trying to figure out how to tell this story. And so the way it worked is you had to go boy, girl, boy, girl, boy, girl in batting order. And um, so there was always a girl following and they, they weren't great hitters. I love them. They're dear women, um, but they weren't great hitters. And so when I got up one day, I realized they had this rule in place that if a person walks, it doesn't matter boy or girl, if a person walks, the person behind them walks also. And recognizing who was behind me in batting order, I thought, you know what would make more sense is for me to get up and walk so that we can both get on base. So I get up and I'm trying to walk. I got to look like I'm not trying to walk. If I just stand there, then they're going to strike me out. You know, that big blooping pitch, right? I hate that thing. Anyway, I'm standing up there, you know, and we go all the way through the count. It gets to a full count. Three balls, two strikes. The next one is the one. Either I'm going to walk or I'm going to strike out. So I decide I can't sit here and take a pitch anymore. For those of you who are baseball fans, I'm going to have to swing away. But I am so confident. You know it's coming, right? I am so confident in my ability to hit this ball, and the team will be better off if I walk. That ball comes in. It's a high blooper. I have no idea if it's going to be a strike or not. I just got to back up. I'm going to take a swing. I'm going to hit a home run, man. I swing as hard as I could swing. Man, I swear I knocked over the whole inning infield just from the air on that bat. I whiffed so bad. And let me tell you, the audience went crazy, but they weren't cheering for me. Oh, they were laughing at me. I was so embarrassed as I walked back and everybody made fun of me. Because in their mind, I didn't tell them my great strategy. I was just going to do it because I was so awesome. In my mind, in my mind, this is going to be great. When I do this, I get on base, I'm going to be like, wow, that was really smart. No, no, no. Instead, I struck out. Everybody doesn't know I'm taking pitches on purpose. At least that's my story and I'm sticking to it. So <laughs> here's the thing. Twice, twice in that game, I believe it was, and once in another game. This fool did the same thing. Till finally my coach came to me and said, what are you doing? And I told him my great strategy. He said, would you just go hit the ball? This is youth group church softball slow pitch, okay? <laughs> just go hit the ball. <laughs> I'd like to say I didn't strike out again the rest of the year, but that's another story of another day. So Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Here's what Paul says about humility. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. So Paul defines humility by these four actions. These four actions. Here they are real quick. Number one, don't be selfish. Is it the reason, just think about this for a minute, that person that you're naming in your head, that you're angry at, maybe it's even a type of person. Maybe it's somebody with a different sin struggle than yours. Maybe it's somebody with a different color of skin than yours. Maybe it's a former employee or somebody with a certain social status. You are convinced. Isn't the number one reason why you're so angry at them is because they're so selfish? You're frustrated at them because of how they're acting. See, here's what happens. When somebody is selfish to us, we have two choices. We'll either be selfish back or we'll be selfless back. 
See, when we're selfish back, we do what I love. Uh, Dr. Egrich and his wife wrote a great book for marriage called Love and Respect. He calls it the crazy cycle. So basically what he says is this. Men don't give love, so their wives don't give respect. And since the wives don't give respect, he doesn't give love. And he calls it the crazy cycle. It just keeps going and going and going. He doesn't love. She doesn't respect. He doesn't love. You're going to be selfish? Fine. I'll be selfish too. And then we feel great. We feel justified. And he says the only way it stops is one person jumps off the crazy train. The crazy cycle, he calls it. One person says, even if you don't love me, I'm going to respect you. I don't care. One person says, even if you don't respect me, I'm going to love you. I'm going to treat you with honor. I'm going to let God deal with you. Boy, that's not good. (laughs) God mess with you, man. So first thing, don't be selfish. Second thing he says is, don't try to impress others. Don't try to impress others. You think about it, ever since the fall, you go all the way back to the garden, Adam and Eve sin, and the first thing they do, it says they're naked and unashamed over and over and over again. First thing they do, they hide in the bushes and they make fig leaves to cover themselves. There's not a single man or woman on the face of the planet. Adam's never seen another woman. Eve has no idea what it's like to carry the burden, ladies, of being compared to every other woman out there. She's the only woman on the planet. Adam has no idea to look at a more successful man and feel like he doesn't measure up. He's the only guy on the planet, but he's hiding himself from his wife. She's hiding herself from her husband because they suddenly feel like they don't measure up. And since that day, every man, every woman of every age has struggled to impress. And instead of trying to impress God, we are so consumed with what other people think of us, our vacations, our cars, our clothing, our houses, where we even eat, the schools our kids go to, have we done enough, accomplished enough, been enough, look enough, We are so stressed out trying to compete with some moving target. Paul says, you want to become like Christ. You want to become compassionate like Christ. Don't be selfish and don't try to impress others. What's he saying? Worry about impressing God. Worry about being a man or a woman with integrity and let God handle the rest. The third thing he says, think of others as better than yourselves. This alone might be the most important one. Think of others as better than yourself. The number one problem that we have, at least that I have, is that I have already made up my mind about someone else. And so therefore, I can judge them, and I'm, I'm okay to be in judgment over them. Because I've already decided they're not going to change. They're, they can't be fixed. They can't be helped. Their thing is too gross. They smell different. They look different. They talk different. Paul says, you want to have a compassionate heart like Christ. Think of every single person as better than you. Okay, now think about it for a minute. Take that person or that people group you have in your mind. They won't stand for the national anthem. Come on, I just got some of you now. They won't sit during the national anthem. I just got some more of you. They call themselves a Christian and a... Fill in the blank. And what we do is we can give somebody a title, we can give somebody a name, and we don't have to love them anymore. And Paul says, I want you to look at every single social outcast. I want you to look at every single person who's uh, hurt, oppressed. I want you to look at every single person who's wealthy and successful. I want you to look at all of them, all of them, as better than you. And what happens when you do that? Well, now you can serve them. Because see, in that culture, this is mind-boggling, in that culture, 
It was an honor society. So while Jesus was born a Jew in a Jewish city, the Jews were conquered by Rome, and the Romans were an honor society. You didn't show humility. In fact, humility was actually a word used to describe servants. So what would happen is if you had resources or if you, uh, somebody had accrued a debt to you, you would have a servant who literally had work for you, and they would stand at the door, and when you'd show up with your feet covered in mud and dirt and everything else, they'd wash your feet. They would be called humble, and it was a, a, a knock. It was a way to make fun of them. The only time you showed humility is if you were a servant, you, in other words, or if you were before a king. And the only reason you were humble before a king is because the king had power and influence. He could either crush you or he could bless you. So it was manipulative. You only showed humility long enough to get the blessing, and then you went right back to being arrogant. And that was seen culturally as a success. The more powerful you were, the more uh, prominence you had, the more resources you had, the better you were. Which is why number four, he said, the fourth thing he said is, don't look out for just you, but look out for others too. See, in Jesus' culture, the ancient Roman culture, and even in the Jews where Jesus was living and, and, and practicing his ministry, it was believed that you were best if everybody else served you. But then Jesus comes along and he flips the whole thing upside down. In fact, you could ask this question, when did, it, did humility become the mark of great leadership? I mean, again, you want your CEO to be humble, right? You want your, CEO, you want your pastor to be humble, right? Pray for him. You want, your, uh, you want your government politicians to be humble, right? You want people to be humble. That's what you want. You'll follow leaders if they'll present humility. Did you know that wasn't the case? So when did it change? It changed in the first century AD. So there's a guy, his name is John Dixon, and he was asked to join a group. Some Christians, some not, but it was not a Christian study. It was put on by a secular, secular university. And they were asking this simple question, when did the world change? Because it's so clear in history that there was an honor society that was about power and prominence. When did it suddenly become cool to be humble? And their studies showed emphatically it changed at the cross of Christ. In fact, John Dixon says this. It was Jesus' actual crucifixion that changed the way ancient people thought about humility and greatness. And literally, Jesus' cross was a game changer. This is why Paul goes on. He says this, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. He says, you, believer in Philippi, and you, believer at Kingsway, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he didn't think of equality with God as something to cling to. Now think of what he's saying there. Jesus was God, but he didn't go around going, I'm God, I'm God, I'm God. Hey, I'm awesome. I'm going to be as great as God or better one day. He's like, no, I'm God. So what did he do in verse 7? Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and he was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God, and he died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to glory of God the Father. And what Paul is saying is this, man, when you look at Jesus, there's nobody more powerful. There's nobody has more right to worship than him. He's God. But instead of staying in heaven and being like, I'm God, I'm awesome. No, 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 no. He took on flesh. And not only did, he didn't come down here even as a king. He didn't come down here and say, uh, Herod, get out. 
Caesar, I need you to get out. I'm going to take over this house. No, no, no. He came down here, and literally we're told at one point, Jesus says, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man, Jesus, has no place to lay his head. I don't even have a bed. I'm literally going from town to town to town, and I eat what the Lord provides. I'm hungry a lot of times. I take some fish and some loaves and multiply them, feed the people first. Jesus is humble in every way. In heaven, he's the wealthiest, wealthiest being ever. I mean, there is no money to him. He made money. But he showed his great leadership in becoming humble. John Dixon goes on to say this. He says, the crucifixion was the ultimate punishment. The lowest place in the Roman world. So the cross of Jesus posed a massive problem for the first Christians. Does Jesus' crucifixion mean that he's not as great as we thought? Or what does it mean that we have to redefine greatness to fit a cross in? See, the first century Christians, the ones living in Philippi, were struggling. We got a wealthy merchant who's got lots of money. We have a soldier who has lots of pride. And we have a slave girl who maybe is holding on to her victim identity. And they're all struggling. I want to be great. I want to be powerful. I want to be rich. But we look at Jesus and he gave all that up. Maybe greatness isn't found in more and bigger and better. Maybe greatness is found in putting on a towel and getting your hands dirty. Maybe greatness is found in what you do in love for others and not what others do for you. Sounds like something one of our presidents said about our country. Jesus makes this story very clear. In Luke chapter 14, he tells a story. I just want to tell it quickly. See, in Jesus' day, if you were wealthy and prominent, you would throw a party. And if you had an honored guest, you'd bring the guest into your home and you would throw a party for everybody else who gathered there. And you would give that person, the prominent guest, the best spot at the table, usually right next to you, so that you could celebrate them. They would know they're great and they were important and they were powerful. And Jesus tells a story. He says, look, if you're going to show up at the party, you don't want to sit in that seat or even right next to that seat. Because if you go sit in that seat and the, uh, the master, the guy throwing the party walks in, he goes, excuse me, what are you doing there? You're going to be totally humiliated by him calling you out and moving you because it wasn't about you. But look at this, Luke chapter 14, verse 10. Instead, Jesus says, take the lowest place at the foot of the table. Then when your host sees you, he will come and say, friend, we have a better place for you. Then you will be honored in front of all the other guests. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, what's Jesus saying? When you go in, don't seek prominence, don't seek power, don't seek influence, don't seek the best of the best. Don't seek for everybody to look at you and go, oh, you're awesome. You find the lowest spot of the table. That way, when the master comes in and he sees you serving, being humble, he'll lift you up and say, no, 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 friend, you're so much more important than that. Now, what Jesus is saying is, here in this kingdom, there's a dinner that's coming. So here, you put on the position of servant, and in heaven, your father will look at you, and he is the master of all, and he'll say, well done. Well done. Come sit over here, right next to me. Did you guys see what he did, she did? Let's all give them a round of applause. And then the master will be the one to speak on your behalf. Jesus gives you more direction. He says this. Look at verse 12. Then he turned to his host. So he's at somebody else's party. 
He turns to his host and he says, when you put on a luncheon or a banquet, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, and your rich neighbors. Isn't that everybody you invite to a party? He says, because they will invite you back and that will be your only reward. What's he getting to? You invite your friends and everybody else and you spend money on them because you know they're going to do the same for you. You're doing it for what they will do for you. It's manipulative. No, instead, Jesus says, verse 13, instead you invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. In Jesus' culture, he mentioned every single category of person, essentially, that was looked down on. Jesus says, you really want to be important in God's kingdom, then you go right after the person that everybody else says isn't important and you invite them to the table. And then, look at what happens, verse 14. Then at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. You go bless others who have no opportunity to bless you back. God's watching. Notice verse 15, though. I love this. Hearing this, a man sitting at the table with Jesus exclaimed, What a blessing it will be to attend a banquet in the kingdom of God. Amen. And what would it look like to have a church of 2,000 people who practiced that banquet here on earth? What would it look like for all of us to go out this week and say, you know what, it may be awkward, it may be hard, it may be uncomfortable, but I just trust that God has compassion and he's going to create a situation for me to bless someone else. Come back now. John Dixon said this. He said, the very first church's reasoning went like this. If the greatest man we have ever known willingly sacrifices life on a cross, the innocent for the guilty, then greatness must exist in willing sacrifice and holding power for the good of others. You want to have a tender, compassionate heart like Jesus, it's time for an attitude adjustment. It's time to see people the way God sees them. It's time to love them the way God loves them. Listen, right now, right now, some of you are experiencing conflict with someone. And you're convinced you're right, and you might be. But God wants healing and restoration between you and them. It might be time for you to just swallow your pride and humbly go to them and say, I love you. It might be time for you to go to them and serve them in a significant way. Something that costs you time or money or effort or energy. But because it's what God did when Jesus left heaven, took on flesh, and died on a cross for you. He didn't wait for you to come home and say, okay, 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 I surrender. No, 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 no. He came to you. Will you have the heart of your father? What I want to do right now, guys, is I want to pray over you. You'll notice all over the room we have tables set up. And they have communion on them. Now, hang on. I know you're shifting and shuffling. Let me say this. Communion is two great things. Number one, it's a chance for us to have community. It's where we get the word communion with each other. But it's also a chance for us to commune, have community with God. If you have brokenness between you and somebody else right now, I want you, as you're taking this communion, I want you to spend this time asking God to change your heart. I don't have the verse. We messed up and my slide guy is out of town on a mission trip. So in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, hang on, hear this. Paul says this, for God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. God is working in you to give you the desire and 
the power to do what pleases him. See, my guess is for some of you, your pride has raised up so much. You have a hard heart. God wants to break down that hardness. I want you, as you come to the table, if you have somebody you have a significant conflict with, you come to that table. As you take that bread, you take that juice. You start by saying, thank you, God, for showing me grace when I needed it. And God, help me to show grace to others because they need it. Maybe some of you, you just need to spend this time dealing with God. You've got sin in your life, and you need that mercy. It's time to be the lost coin, the lost sheep, or the prodigal son, and come home. We want to celebrate with you. If that's you, while we're taking communion, you go to my left, your right, and we'll have some people meet you right under that screen over there. Let me pray, and then there'll be some music, and you can just take communion as God leads you. Father in heaven, give us the attitude of Christ. Lord, I thank you for this example, this church at Philippi. They're not perfect. God, there's some issues, there's some stuff. But we thank you that Paul wrote this fantastic letter pointing us back to Christ. Give us his attitude. Give us humility that we might have compassion on others. We might show mercy to others. God, as you pour out your compassion and your mercy over us. God, give us as a church unity that we might have one heart and one mind and one purpose. We ask all this in Jesus' name.